0: Before there was Noir, there was The Programmer, B-movies that would run on a double bill and offer cheap thrills after the main event. These films were not concerned with art, but with entertainment. Often they focused on genre pictures, westerns or crime procedurals to start, and later horror or sci-fi. Villains were punished, heroes rewarded. Murder Mysteries were a perfect fit for studios trying to keep up with insatiable audience demand. Many of these were adapted from novels, drawing on a lineage from Edgar Allan Poe to Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie, and featuring brilliant, erudite, and witty detectives. William Powell perfectly fit this archetype. Born in 1892 in Pittsburgh, he got his start in Broadway and vaudeville in New York in the 1910s. He soon transitioned to silent films, working his way up through the studio system. At the end of the 1920s, he was well positioned as a star and trained stage performer to make the leap to talkies, which he did with The Canary Murder Case, where he starred as Philo Vance, an amateur detective. He immediately set the mold for the kind of detective he would make his mark with, arch and dry, comfortable with any class of people, and always ahead of the game. Powell would star in 13 murder mystery films with him as either an amateur or professional private detective, including four as Philo Vance and six as Nick Charles. He was an exemplar of the gentleman detectives, a leisure class applying themselves to intellectual puzzles while never losing sight of what's right or wrong. Afterwards came the grizzled P.I., as likely to get his hands dirty and compromise himself as the victims of criminals he cavorted with. But for now, he had not yet arrived. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all.
1: So you're a private
0: detective? Didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel
1: corridors. Yeah, well, you know that's just like uh your opinion, man. Step aside, like a nice fella, and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh God! I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Yeah.
0: Ladies, it's okay with me.
1: Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together and watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I am one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pilser. And today, we are exploring the prehistory of film noir, on the cusp of transitioning from the procedurals and programmers of the 30s to the more complicated and morally ambiguous films of the 40s. And who best to examine this moment in time than the wittiest gentleman detective around, William Powell. Later, we'll be talking about what I think we'd both say is the high point of his career, and this type of character, the thin man, from 1934. But to start, we're going to look at 1933's Private Detective 62. When I woke up, I found myself alone in a hotel room with this man.
0: I want to know who's offering 10 grand to frame that Reynolds girl. As long as you're getting you split, what do you care? I think we ought to drop the case. Drop a 10 grand fee? You're crazy. Now listen to me. I came to be paid, you hear me? And if you do so much as lay a hand on me, well, that's what I bought this for.
1: You haven't got nerve enough.
0: Tony, stop! I'll shoot.
1: A friend of yours? Yes. Hi, this man's a detective. A
0: detective? Of course. He's a private detective. Yes, Janet, I am a private detective. Private Detective 62 follows Donald Free, a U.S. spy who gets burned on a mission, and winds up back in the States looking for work. Through a circuitous chain of events, he winds up partnering with Dan Hogan, the corrupt owner of the Peerless Detective Agency, and gets embroiled in a case involving a gangster trying to set up a lucky and lovely gambler who's about to collect her winnings. Directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Ryan James, and starring William Powell as Free. So to start, as always, uh, Tristan, what's your personal experience with this and uh, previous experience with this movie? Uh,
1: none for me. Um, this one was uh, a, a brand new one, and it's a, a breezy film, so quick, just a little over an hour. A fun one to get to dive in and see Powell in, uh, in pre-Thin Man mode. I enjoyed it while also see, recognizing that it's on the slate side.
0: <laughs> for sure. I was surprised, too. I, I was I was also new to this one. Outside of the thin man, a lot of my pal experience has actually been his, uh, more of his comedies, uh, which are pretty great as well. But my man you know, Godfrey is, is oh, my man Godfrey, pretty great. Course. But the whole team behind this is a set of familiar names that Ryan James also worked on 42nd Street. I think it's his biggest claim to fame as a, as a screenwriter. But Cortese, of course, will reappear on this show at some point for Mildred Pierce and Casablanca, both of which he directed.
1: Clearly, he is is just beginning to cut his teeth here uh, where where you can you can tell how much more his projects will gain prestige as he moves into the 1940s. And I do look forward to revisiting both of those uh, for various reasons.
0: Yes. Uh, and I think it's just the epitome of the studio system director uh, and that he just, you know, he shows up, he sets the camera up, he gets the coveraging needs and presumably... Hits their days, hits their, hits their budget, gets things out. He also uh, directed the perennial holiday classic White Christmas, which gets a lot of play around my house come the <laughs> holiday season. So. I
1: have never watched White Christmas. I, I don't know how I've managed that. I I think it's because I normally avoid most Christmas movies, but... I'm surprised because
0: you're an ex roommate of my wife's, so I, I don't have, know how
1: you escaped not watching that when you were
0: living with her. I have absolutely
1: no idea <laughs> Clearly, I need, to, I need to brush up on, on my holiday classics.
0: I mean, it. I've admittedly, this might be Stockholm Syndrome at this point because I've watched it a lot in the last 10 years, but <laughs> I've definitely been won over by it. It's pretty slight in the story department, but it's worth it for just the big musical numbers. You know, it's one of those great musicals where it's like, it's about a song and dance team and they team up with another song and dance team. So there's a bunch of it. Uh, diegetic reasons to just do these huge musical numbers so it's essentially a musical review with a very light holiday wrapping to it and it's it's a, it's a pretty good musical review there is a very weird so it's also a, a we're really going off topic but I think this also That's speaks right. to how I Slight Practice of 62 is yes
1: <laughs>
0: but it, you know because it's an, uh, a remake of an earlier holiday movie which had Uh, from what I remember does have a like blackface sequence to it as was very common and the Cartese version doesn't have blackface but they do have a like vaudeville number called Mr. Bones which is very clearly invoking all of blackface while not actually doing it you know the gentlemen are all in and the gloves and there's like a series of comedy routines that are sung that are if not direct lifts from that that era that are are very clearly referencing it so it's a very weird moment but it's also just a great great cast having a lot of fun singing and dancing so you know if if understandably that can be a barrier for some and I would not blame you, but if you're able to look past it for the rest
1: it's Pretty enjoyable. Well, uh, to sort of tie that to to <laughs> Private, uh, Private Detective sixty two, uh, no, the, this idea um, when when you're jumping in and watching a bunch of older films and you're you're so far removed from modern reference points, pop culture reference points specifically, not being sure what's referencing what. One thing that jumped out to me in Private Detective sixty two is that on several occasions they they deployed the the theme from. Uh, uh, of the song isn't it romantic which is from Mm the wonderful love me tonight one of my favorite musicals ever Uh, and and they dropped it in there and at first it felt really jarring because i I associate this so clearly with another movie Mm -hmm. Um, and then i thought oh yeah but how many if you think of modern pop songs appearing in movies how many times have we had to listen to bohemian rhapsody or spirit in the sky or whatever uh being a needle drop in in some movie and that's just something we take for granted this was just a needle drop
0: (laughs) true but i think it's also i think it's so little can be a little surprising but those moments are all diegetic from what i recall correct
1: Yes, or maybe the final uh, one. No, I isn't, think the final one wasn't. I think the, fu- the I final think one's was a cool. callback,
0: but the the initial ones are are diegetic So you know, I think it's still. I think there's still something a little surprising about that pre-graduate, right? You know, that's true. To, to me, that is the big turning point where yeah. it's like, oh, right, pop music in movies. Let's do it. And before that, it's the score, and then the slow sh- slide towards our modern situation where all all score movie scores are expected to be. Uh, Background elevator music, and, and you know, you should only notice the music when they're dropped when we're paying for a big pop song, and
1: the rest of it is just, it's just temp filler. So some of some of it too. Uh, I'm sure this is the kind of thing that's that's more much more common than either of us. Uh, and we're, and we both know movies a a little bit, you know, but I, I think I'm sure it's more common than either of us ever realize things that, that we're not picking up on. We're going to, uh, there's clearly a, a callback in the uh, trailer for the thin man. When we, when we talk about that uh, and, and before we hopped on here, I, um, as I was reviewing our our notes and I saw 42nd street, I jumped immediately into a, uh, a, a bit of a, YouTube rabbit hole on uh, Busby Berkeley musical numbers <laughs> and and started watching them. And Shanghai Lil from Footlight Parade is a pretty direct, which has got problematic elements to it, uh, but has pretty direct inspiration being lifted from Shanghai Express from the year before. So everything oh, sure. is calling on popular reference points.
0: For sure. It's, and I think that's one of the really interesting parts of how we've set up the season and the show of really trying to chronologically move through the the noir genre and the different archetypes within it and how they've evolved over time so we can start to get a sense of how that conversation is happening. You know, we're not doing an exhaustive survey of these films, but I think we're hitting enough of the highlights that we can get the the sense of that. But again, we are really straying pretty far from Private Detective 62. Oh, poor Private Detective Uh, 62. Nothing against you. Nothing against you. I mean, I think... I get you know, speaking for both of us here I, I would agree I think that we'd agree that William Powell is the highlight of Private Detective 62
1: yeah absolutely um so uh did we did we get to the description <laughs> here.
0: yes we we, we, we did
1: talk. it's already forgotten what the yeah we talked
0: through the, the broad strokes of the movie which is it's so weird because the plot is there's a lot that happens but there's not a lot that happens. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it covers a lot of ground, but the actual you can tell like...
1: it's being you can tell it's being shot quickly. Um, you can yeah. tell that you can tell it's a product of that earlier early studio system. It does feel um, it does feel like it, it touches on a lot of different plot. It takes us quite a while, even in this short movie, to get to the um, the case at hand. Before... Yeah, it's,
0: it's all it's a of setup. I actually thought after I watched it, I had to look it up because I had assumed it was an adaptation of a book series or something where there was a this big backstory to this character that audiences would go insane if it wasn't included. You know, sort of like how uh, everybody was super mad that Tom Cruise was playing Jack Reacher because in the books, Jack Reacher is six foot five and 250 pounds. And so now the big, big guys, uh, that actor is... Uh, the new amazon prime tv show there's an actual like six foot three inch humongous man who's playing jack reacher and everybody's like thank god we finally got what the <laughs> books promised us uh and so it just it, to me it had that feeling to it so i was very surprised it was like oh we spent half this movie with a very convoluted and involved process to get us to the actual setup of the movie which is this charming guy is a private detective
1: <laughs> Yes. Uh, And, and yeah, it works because the reason we're all here is to watch William Powell do his thing. For the William Powell type, that backstory does make sense and it works. The William Powell type is, um, is such a, the only other actor that I can think of that, that comes close or, or in some cases does match Powell for charisma and for his styles, David Niven. I can't think of anyone else who, who, touches in in that same high high society poshness but also but also wit you want to put Cary Grant in that category uh I I think that Grant um doesn't feel he feels a little bit more approachable uh honestly yeah. I I feel That's like fair. he can see that he doesn't feel quite as aristocratic as um as Powell sure 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 Powell definitely has that
0: throwback to him, which is also kind of fascinating, again, because, you know, he was born in Pittsburgh, right? I mean, he's uh, yeah. not an aristocratic guy. He's definitely doing the Mid-Atlantic thing in a very early iteration of it. But even outside, yeah, there's just something about him that elevates the material, in it, both artistically and just perceptually as a class signifier.
1: Knowing he's from Pittsburgh, it does feel like like this is a this is a guy that, that could be, you know, salt of the earth of the, of the people. Um, But that's not uh, whether it's, uh, I guess a product of its time um, where he just happened to be coming of age at the right time that this character was what people wanted. This is depression era and, Mm -hmm. and having that kind of escapism where, where, you know, we can all aspire to be running around on park Avenue and, and, uh, drinking martinis and looking and good that's suits. What, that's what audience wanted. I know. Yeah,
0: and I think it's a really good point. so that you know, like you said, this is Depression era. But we're between World Wars. Geopolitics at large are becoming more and more unsettled. So I think you're totally right about the escapism. And with Private Detective Sixty Two, there's almost uh, an element that's almost predicting my man Godfrey of him. You know, so he's accused of being a—he's found out as a spy in France. And he gets sent back. He's then he's gonna be brought back and imprisoned. And he escapes off the boat. And he's got nothing. And so there's a good chunk of the opening half of the movie that's just about him being broke and more broke, and kind of scamming his way into some money, and then eventually into a job. But you know, it's very—you know—it's it, literally there's a montage of him just going around and people being like, "We're not hiring."
1: yeah um, and, so it, it definitely and, and i think that. it's it's the removal from the the time period it's also the it's it's the suits it's um it's the tailoring but still he manages to look very suave while doing all of this for sure well it helps that he uh
0: he's runs he's that so con gentle. at the the cabin and like walks out with money in a in a jacket yes. right so uh that that helps kind of set him up but such a that's such another weird part of it where it's You know, he runs that con, like five minutes later, he finally comes back to that same detective and gets the job there. And it's one of those things where like, you could, we could have, I mean, I get that we want to see him struggle, but also we could have closed that gap and just gotten to the story a little bit faster because we're already there. He's already- Maybe they needed to to have to hit an hour. (laughs) Uh, That's fair. You know, again, going back to the programmer side of it, like you needed to to fill seats. Um, Especially, you know, at this time, you're still- you know, movies were just run all day, right? And so you would just kind of walk in and sit down and then you'd stay there until you reached the part where you sat in, sat down to begin with and you'd leave. Or maybe you wouldn't even stay for the whole thing if you didn't like it. So there was, there's that, movies were almost more, you know, Netflix binge model, essentially, where it was yeah, kind of just like a series of 10, 15 minute pieces that kind of all fit together, but it wasn't really being thought of in that kind of very concrete there's a start and an end you know i mean there are people who love movies and got that for sure but that wasn't you know it wasn't until what uh, psycho that it really became there's a start time and at the start time you have to be in your seat or you're not going to be let in and then that was you know the real ch- sea change in terms of um, the movie experience well so that might explain uh, the more i don't know episodic
1: elements of it yeah, I think that um, that makes sense. And honestly, that y- you can look at so many films from around this time. Certainly, any of the musicals are mm-hmm. that that you're going to draw on from the 1930s are so are so episodic. Something like The Thin Man is a, a little bit more plot dependent. But yeah, yeah, I'd say that they're all fun. like that. But I think
0: I, I, I do think that kind of. Again, now the, the that you pointed that out, it does feel very similar to me to the the Netflix model, where it's that sort of. There's a lot of stuff happening, but we're kind of just also filling the time. But you know, again, Wayne Powell great has some great lines, some great delivery. My thesis of the episode, right? He is that that gentleman detective, where he is. Especially, I think it's interesting that it comes out of a spy model as well. Whereas he's, yeah. he's not just suave and debonair, but he's an
1: international man of mystery, which doesn't really kind of play into the rest of it, but is still an element of his character. If this were made 10 years later, if this were made with a star with a little bit more of a hardened edge to him, all of a sudden this goes from being on the fringes of noir to being firmly in that, that camp. It's, and that it's was, so yeah. close. It's, and was, it's the all the whole thing. It's all Powell. Powell's
0: yeah. <laughs> holding it back. Uh, <laughs> No, but I think it's it's I don't think it's just pal, but i I do one hundred percent agree that uh, the whole time I was watching I was like these are all elements that I have seen in actual noirs that they are just totally handled differently, and I think it comes back to what your your point in our opening to the private detective season that the noir is about both the external and the internal struggle of the detective character, and he he is he is facing demons both without and within and here pal never loses sight of what's right or wrong and we never really doubt that he's gonna do the right thing and so every element that we encounter you know the 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 skeeziest gets i guess would be that opening con but the implication is you know he's conning somebody who's having an affair and uh private detective who clearly has no like morals or ethics so you know he's pulling a fast one on people who we shouldn't feel bad he's pulling a fast one on and the rest of the time he just doesn't he doesn't really struggle with any of the stuff so i think that that it's a pal's performance is definitely influencing it but i think it's also the way the creative team is viewing the story elements that's also very it's just it's like somebody switched from a red lens to a blue lens to look at the same thing and you're like oh this is just a different it's not noir now
1: Right, and then you've got the the romance hook to it, which mm-hmm. uh, which, which also is not going against the grain of noir because it, that grain isn't isn't there yet. But uh, but it definitely um, that's an element that would never have we would never end uh, we would never end on that kind of note uh, in the same film if it was made ten years well, later. I mean, that's nothing I kept waiting for. Was so all right. So <laughs> I, I, again, we kind of really tagging around this movie. So to kind
0: of just go through the elements because I think it is educational to talk through the specific components of how uh, when I when I describe them to you're gonna you're gonna think oh this is this sounds like a noir you know so it starts with you know he's he's escaped from international police he sneaks into a cabin he overhears two people having an affair and then a private detective breaks in and then he pretends to be the owner of the space and gets them off and I was like this is like the ending of crisscross and this is I mean you know it's that that whole situation i was like i've seen this v- before uh but it's played like a comedy uh i think it's the other thing too is that you know there's a lot of funny you know funny lines and good banter but it's played at that pitch of like and now we're gonna hold for the laughs whereas in the noir you'd be like that's a good line but we're gonna keep going because the stuff is tense and it never gets tense it's only ever except maybe at the 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 double cross but we we'll get you know we'll get to So right so there's the opening with the the con scene at the um, lover's nest. Uh, then he gets to work as a private detective and he's following the woman who might be having an affair, but that turns out to be a red herring and it's actually, she's going to meet her husband and that's another just gag instead of a, a you know, interesting, juicy situation. Then the partner makes the deal with the gangster to get funding and set up a real shop. And they blow through that like it's an offhand phone conversation and then a new uh, a newspaper um, headline and blind item that's just sort of like well jewelry stores better lock up their goods because th- these crooks are, are becoming private detectives but the whole time you're like pal is is a is a is, is a white knight in this and when we then jump ahead and finally start the premise of the movie 40 minutes in, he seems, he's very clearly unaware of the circumstances and the actual deal here, which is that his partner, Hogan, is doing the dirty work for this gangster who's running a, a gambling organization, uh, operation. And it's like, oh, we've jumped ahead like two years or something. How has this not come up before now? But It,
1: do- you know, it does. I And I, I guess... I guess you can write it off to the the plot, or you could just uh or you could just write it off to Ho- Hogan comes across as being uh, incompetent. Uh so, so it's like
0: how does he not, you know, I mean, like, for example, he's bugged his his partner. Hogan has bugged Pal's uh office, but as soon as it becomes relevant to the plot, Pal immediately figures it out because Hogan bursts in and is like, How dare you do this thing? I just overheard you say to a separate person. He's like, How did you know? that was the case and then he finds the bug and he's like uh hogan you you're up to your old tricks yep and that's the thing is everything is done at that pitch of of comedy and not even we'll talk about the big lebowski later this season for example and that is you know a comedy but a very dark comedy and and still feels like a noir but this is just straight gags you know and then it's not
1: it's not like in later later era noir where there's more of a camp element that Mm -hmm. that starts to drift into it where it's, it's being ridiculous and it is okay with that.
0: Right. But it's not pitched
1: that high. It's pitched no, it's, pretty low. It is. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's just, it's meant as a series of, of gags, but it's also, it's also meant as a star vehicle for William Powell.
0: Just to finish running, because again, it's just, it's, it's, it's really like a stew of noir elements. When you get to the end, you're like, how is this not a noir? Cause then we actually start the premise. So he's a successful detective now because they've got money the gangster has a uh, lady who's been winning a ton of money and she's about to cash out and he doesn't want to have to pay her. So he wants to um, create a scandal to force her to leave town before she can collect the money. So Pal goes to case her and see what's up and they end up falling for each other. But, you know, she is, she's, she's one, she's winning a ton of money and there's, and she's playing roulette. So it's not like poker or something similar where you're like, Oh, there's skill involved she's just very lucky and you know coming from this noir background the whole time i was like okay so she's a femme fatale so when are we gonna get the reveal that she's fixing the game or doing something? it's like no she's just it, a lucky lady and
1: waiting for it yeah there's just nothing to that character she's
0: just like a nice nice funny lady who's got some money and winning a lot more and uh is about
1: to go on a trip to europe again set this 10 years later, have her playing cards. And all of a sudden she, she, you introduce an element of, Oh, is she, even if you don't resolve it, is she cheating? Is she not? But that's, that doesn't come up.
0: No, because it's, you know, the good people are good and the bad people are bad Uh, the good people win and the bad people lose. Um, I mean, just to finish out here. Right. So we've got uh, so the pal refuses, because again, there's, there's no internal angst or struggle here. Uh, So then Hogan and the the gangster set up this whole convoluted scheme where they're going to frame her, make her think that she killed somebody and they like swap out the bullet. So the bullets a blank. It's a very, very convoluted scheme. But then of course there's a double cross and Hogan has his guy actually kill the gangster so that she gets pinned for the murder and Hogan's no longer under this guy's thumb. And again, I'm like, okay, this is a interesting noir setup and it's played a little bit for tension cuz immediately pal starts unwinding it but part of the problem is it's like like you said it's over it's only over an hour and by the time we get to this we're 15 minutes from the end or something so it's it's not it does not take him long to figure this out and we also already know i think that's the other thing you know if you took this exact same plot took out the com- the straight comedic tone and did not let us see what all of like Hogan's scheming and we just started with pal's a detective he gets hired for this job for this lady and he starts to fall for the lady but there's something up with her and this gangster and then suddenly she thinks she killed somebody and he's got to figure out did she kill somebody she says she did and there's a body but it doesn't seem like her you know like that if that had been the first 10 minutes I'd be like this is a noir about a detective and everybody's playing an angle except him and he's in over his head and he's probably gonna die by the end but instead, it's like this is the final ten minutes, and it's really a romantic comedy. And Pal's gonna expose his his partner for being a murderer, and then get the girl, and that's that's the end.
1: I guess you have to preserve your star. That's part the when you think about nineteen thirties, you've got to think about star like how the studios are treating their stars' reputations and and how they want what what beat they want them to end on, and that they want them to keep coming back and paying for more or less the same experience. Over and over again. True. Uh, and, no, and, I, uh, and
0: actually talking about that too, I, I think it really is a rom com. It I just again, it doesn't really become a rom com until like the last half of it. But you know, because there's even they they even have the breakup moment that is traditional to rom coms as you enter the third act. It's just predicated on the reveal that he is a private detective and he didn't tell her that. And of course, all private detectives are scum except for William Powell because he's the one great. Uh, private detective, you know, uh, who actually has ethics and morals. So it's, I don't know, it's just a very, it's really interesting. I, I think it's, uh, it's like you said, it's a fun movie. It's not a great movie, but I think it is fascinating for how it very clearly pins the moment right before noir starts. You are like, this is all the stuff that would become a signature of noir, but it's not there. And it's just,
1: it just needs to be, like, rotated 90 degrees, and you'd have one of the earliest wars. that stands then uh in comparison and in, in in contrast in some ways to uh to our second film of the evening uh also william powell starring uh his uh, uh his most famous film i i think we agree yeah and that would be the thin man hello there hello another uh, glad I you know, we do know each other. Certainly, so, I we've known each other for years. Aren't you Nick Charles? Huh? Yeah. You don't remember me. I'm Dorothy Winant. How is your father? Oh, that's what I came to ask you. He's disappeared. Chris, what are you going to do? That's what I said I'd do. Chris, you wouldn't do that.
0: <laughs> Nicky. It automatically is, Nicky, put uh,
1: after in here between tonight. <laughs> oh, Yeah.
0: Nice missing. I'll look for it in your back. It's about Julia Wolfe. Did you kill her? Gilbert! Well, why not? You had a perfectly good motive. How'd you like to have a couple of little murderers be a children? The thin man follows retired detective Nick Charles and his society wife Nora, whose rich idol is interrupted when a series of murders drop in his lap. An ex client of his, an eccentric adventurer, Wynant, is on the run, suspected of taking murderous vengeance against the people who have wronged him directed by W.S. Van Dyke, adapted by married writers Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich from the book by Dashiell Hammett, and starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. Just a little bit more, uh, this film was nominated for Best Picture, Van Dyke for best, Pick, for best Director, Goodrich and Hackett for Best Adapted Screenplay, and Powell for Best Actor. It's probably one of the best-received movies we're going to talk about on, on here in its, in its time. Of course, it's also not ours, yeah. so that maybe as a part also from a time when the Oscars were like comedies are hard work, everybody. Let's, let's, you know, recognize the, the good stuff you're doing. Uh, Uh,
1: Well, what a, what a comedy to recognize. I, I I was so happy to get to revisit this. Yes. Uh, It, it, it's just a, um, just a joyful, funny film. I can't, the number of times I, I was audibly laughing throughout this. It's probably been eight years or so since I've watched it, but, uh, wow, it, it holds up. It's written so well, and both Powell and Loy are so charming. Van Dyke
0: is a, like you were talking about with the studio system, in particular. stars. Van Dyke did a lot of, uh, I mean, he did all, many of the Thin Man movies. He did a lot of William Powell movies in general. Um, so he was definitely a guy who like knew how to work with Powell. Uh, not that, uh, according to all reports, is one of the loveliest people around and it's tough to find anybody have, have a having a bad word about him from, from his, his time in the system, but clearly he and Van Dyke got along well. Also, just a little bit more, uh, you know, to give you a sense of like the tone of the piece, you know, Goodrich and Hackett were not crime writers. They were comedy writers. And so, you know, I mean, like they did, they worked on his a Wonderful Life, which had several writers uh, because uh, what's his name it was apparently just a terrible, terrible guy to work with if you were a writer. Capra, uh, Capra yeah. Uh, you know, the Capra Dutch uh, apparently oh, took, took a lot of blood, sweat, man. and tears. You know, they worked on a lot of musicals. They did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Easter Parade. They did the original Father of the Bride. They worked for Lucille Ball. So, you know, that's
1: like... That's quite a resume.
0: So that's the the tone that's being brought to a Dashiell Hammett novel, which I think this is, that's why I think this is the other interesting movie to discuss in this pre-noir moment because it's actually you know the film noir is is interesting because it's delayed by a little bit from the hard-boiled pulp of uh the 30s and so you know dash Lamb had already written the maltese falcon and then went on to write the thin man book and then it's been a while since i've read the thin man book and it's 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 more in between those two modes and then obviously They kind of took it and turned it into this pal-starring vehicle, and brought in these these comedy writers to really make it pop. So again, it's just a very interesting, like on the verge of being noir, but it's definitely not. And it's and I think a lot of it again comes down to that tone and and pal
1: comes down to the tone. Um, This is uh, I I, you will be hard pressed if you come through uh, through film noir to find a a happily married couple that <laughs> that uh that can banter with each other <laughs> much like Powell and Loy can do here uh there may maybe a few exceptions to that witness for the prosecution would be a good one to talk about in that regard but for mm-hmm. the most part married couples um uh, have have uh very dubious ends <laughs> on on most noir right well i i, I again yeah,
0: When you said this, uh, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep quoting you because when you said it with such a moment of clarity for me, it is the absence of an internal struggle. It is purely external complications and obstacles that they have to overcome. And they're very fun. I'm not dogmatic and and I'm not going to come in here and be like, these are not real characters. I don't feel like they're breathing people, so I can't enjoy this movie. It's like, no, this is designed to do a thing and it is doing it exceptionally well. Um, But the thing that's designed to do does not include that. It, it, um,
1: even more, more so than than Private Detective sixty two. This is that that wish fulfillment of the nineteen thirty depression era. You want to see, um, you you want to see people sipping martinis and um, and playing with their adorable dog and uh, and going to lavish parties in New shooting York. Shooting
0: balloons and, uh,
1: also is this the the. Is it the first film to feature the train whistle note? I don't know. To, to, I don't know. I, I realized that, that, that. I feel like was that was maybe a vaudeville thing. I feel like that was maybe a vaudeville
0: thing that kind of translated over to. But no, I think you're right. Because the, the, again, Pal is playing a local boy made good, right? Because he was like five or 10 years prior to the start of this movie, you know, working stiff P.I. who's going around and, and doing grunt work. And then he manages. I mean, it's it's essentially if if Sam Spade like managed to get the girl and then was like, oh, fuck it, I don't have to work anymore, and I'm just gonna sit back and get drunk all the time. <laughs> I mean, obviously, tonally, it's, it's not quite there. But in terms of his backstory, that's that's how it reads. It allows the audience to project themselves onto Pal a, a little bit, even more, and sort of be like the fantasy of I'm I'm that smart and that clever, and also I managed to win the lottery and fall in love with Myrna Loy and marry her and she's a millionaire. You know, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good, pretty good deal.
1: Uh, and it's just one scene after another, after another of them, uh, of them playing off of each other, of, uh, of them moving from society, high society a- engagement to another. It, it has those noir beats. They're, they're all, they're in there, they're couched within this, but it also Takes time for extended moments of comedy, like him mm-hmm. shooting at the bulbs in the Christmas tree.
0: Which apparently uh, was improvised. They they saw a pal shooting and stuff, and they're like, "Oh, this is hilarious. Let's have him actually just do it." Why? Apparently, uh, that was the the mode on set. Not only was the the screenwriting team, who I, I can't remember, really mentioned, are a married couple. Not only were they brought in to take the book as a loose structure to then fill with fun set pieces. But then on set, Van Dyke was like, "Loy and Pal have great chemistry. So the way that they're playing off of each other off camera, let's bring that on camera, and incorporate that into the movie." Which I think is why they're they are hands down the best part of it. Um, but it's also very interesting as a starring vehicle, which definitely is. So um, the clip, the the trailer, the bits of the trailer we played at the start of this part, we actually didn't play the opening of it, which is. William Powell as Nick Charles talking to William Powell as Philo Vance, his first signature detective character. And so it is very clearly trading on the, you liked William Powell in that? You're going to love him in this. Source, play that for you right now.
1: What well, happened if it isn't Philo Vance? I beg your pardon? Who said that? I haven't seen you since you solved the Kennell murder case. How are you? Well, for the love of Nick Charles, what are you doing up there? Impersonating a book cover? Shh. I'm working on a case. Don't tell me you've gone back to detective work. I thought you had turned respectable. Didn't you get married? Oh, didn't I? Vance, I married a girl in a million. Hmm. I heard it was a girl
0: uh, with a million. And so you can see how it's, you know, it is in a similar mode. I I will say his final advance character is a little bit more of a, a dilettante. And uh, is more of the amateur detective, whereas Nick Charles is the former, it's the retired professional. But it's definitely very purposely made in a similar mold, in a similar tone, and a similar style. Uh, and they want you to know it, and <laughs> they want you to come buy tickets for it.
1: No one could possibly make how many detective? At least t- he's done at least ten detective movies. More, more than that, 12, 13 over the course yeah. of his. His career, he's a bankable star. That 100%. is um, that is something that the studios don't want to mess with. They know what the audience is there for. They don't want to mess with that formula. A- and yeah, they clearly kept the name, The Thin Man, through five sequels, despite the fact that The Thin Man is, is a plot point slash, well, victim within this movie. So yeah, we've got the fact that The Thin Man, he is not
0: the titular Thin Man. He, the Thin Man, as you said, is the victim. And it's a major plot point that you know he's that uh, Winant is a thin guy, but the clothes that were thrown in there were for a big guy is to throw people off the scent that the skeleton is actually Winant's and that winant has been dead the whole time. Also, you know, Nick and Nora don't show up until ten minutes into the movie. Like the first ten minutes are just all set up of this murder mystery and when the players get, uh, that are involved.
1: Th- that that opening shot is so is so noir. It's uh mm-hmm. you've got shadow projected onto the wall in a, a dark basement. Or studio, at least I don't know if it's basement, but it, it's basement because uh, yeah, he uh, goes down basement. and it takes so, yeah, because you out. go down into the dirt. Yeah, it looks very noir from the the very beginning, and but then you
0: know, the the assistant walks in and he breaks it. Yep. and He's like, "You're fired!" Wait, what? You're, why are you <laughs> leaving? I didn't say you were fired. Get back! In. You know, it's like it's it's it so quickly switches into that like it's a nutty professor. Everybody, it's going to be fun. He's going to die, yep. but it's still going to be very funny. They, it takes a while for Nick and Orr to even appear. And then they he doesn't accept he doesn't take the case until like 15 minutes in. Uh it's another f- 30 to 40 minutes of Nora trying to convince him to do it because she thinks it's interesting. And Nick Charles me while the entire time is like, this is too much work. I don't want to do this. I don't have to work anymore. And then finally is like, Well, people keep dying around me, so I guess I should do something about it. And and uh finally takes action. And like you said, I think I think it is still very enjoyable because it's the trade-off for having the plot be on such a back burner is that we get a lot of time with Nick and Nora
1: just having fun. And that's really what we're all here for anyway. Exactly. And who knows exactly what, if there's a lot of improvisation happening on set, how much uh, Van Dyke realized just what he had on his hands because, uh, because chemistry like, like Powell and Loy have is, is not that common. No. they they have they are truly one of the best on-screen couples i i could think of they're they'd be probably fighting for the top spot on that list if i had to make one
0: oh it's great it's so simpatico you know again the fact that there's never like they never have to fight to make the story interesting i think is part of it right like right they, it, the, they're crazy about each other and they have fun and they can get into each other's skin sometimes but there's never like that dark night of the soul, the like I thought you were cheating on me, or whatever, or like you know, it's just no. And he shamelessly flirts too. He <laughs> oh yeah. Well, does he? Uh, I don't know because he's. I don't know if I say he shamelessly flirts, but I think he enjoys that he winds up in situations where he's interacting yes. with a very attractive That's woman. Fair. But I don't feel he's ever like I'm gonna like go over it,
1: but he, he's just he's like not, this is hilarious. He has, he has no he has no intent. Uh, he has no intent to it. He's but he 100%. is very much enjoying himself. Right. But he's never voted,
0: so. it, but then he just makes a face at her like, can you believe this? You yep. uh, walked in on me with this lady, <laughs> beautiful lady crying on my shoulder. What what's going on? And she's just like, uh, uh. no, it's it's a delight. Highly recommend."
1: Yeah, we haven't really talked about the plot, If you haven't watched that's... many 30s films, uh for for any listeners who uh, yeah. haven't watched many 30s films, this is a terrific entry point. Yes, uh, a
0: great uh, great date movie. Uh, my wife and I watch this one frequently and the other's not so much. It's definitely a case of diminishing returns, but the first one uh, I think we talked about it in the intro, the, the like a the very first episode of the, of the podcast. I I remember watching this when I was young and having a blast. So it's it's long been a, a go to movie of mine, and I introduced my wife to it, and she also loves it. And So we 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 return to it frequently. Uh, we actually, when I was rewatching it for this episode, she wanted in, so we we made time so that we could oh, both sit down awesome. and watch it because it's it's great. It, it is, is. Uh, I...
1: hashtag relationship goals. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, No, what a a wonderful movie. Incidentally, I would, I, um, I, I love, I love the thirties in general. I think just as a, as a period for film, there's so much um, there's, there's both innovation happening. um, You've got, uh, you've got the depression, which is causing a, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, not just the depression, but also the rise of Nazism that both are, are causing a lot of reaction from directors and writers when it, it comes to what films are being produced you've got the Hayes code disrupting things midway through the decade uh with sound being new there's so much innovation and play with the form i think it's it's just such an exciting decade and i love talking about films from the 30s
0: we brush not brushed the plot of the movie but so much of it incidental to the joy of watching these these two characters bounce off each other.
1: The, the plot is all, it, it just all is wrapped up in that final dinner party scene anyway. Well, right, well it's a classic
0: Going again, going back to Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie, it's a classic drawing room mystery of and now we're all going to get together and I'm going to go through the suspects and kind of process of elimination, figure out who it couldn't be until I get a reaction and I'm like, well there's your guy. It's just clever enough. I mean, I guess we kind of gave away the big twist uh, that that is sets up the third act that Winant is in fact dead the entire time. But I think also at this point, you know, any viewer, modern viewer going back to watch this is going to be very, like instantly you're alert to the fact that nobody has seen Winant since the opening 10, 15 minutes. And so a lot of people have been like, well, I didn't talk to him. My secretary got a message or this telegram came in and it told me to do this thing and it must have been true. At this point, a modern movie goer will be like, I can see what's happening there. Um, But the rest of it is still fun.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I... I feel like when I watched this the first time, I had almost forgotten it when I revisited. But um, mm. when I when I watched the first time, I had seen the lawyer played by Porter Hall becomes uh, or is revealed at the end to be the killer. I had seen him for whatever, by whatever chance in a handful of movies, all very close together when I first watched this. So I'd recognized him and I was like, that guy that guy's suspicious and from, from <laughs> well, like so, early on i i i had yeah. i had honed in on that and i'd almost like forgotten that point when i revisited mm. it because it's it is such a, a a nest of different characters that they're stacking on top of each other and they're all a little ridiculous
0: but it's the classic guest yeah, star of the week on law and order must be the guy who did it because why else would they be playing that role if it wasn't a fun juicy killer especially that lawyer because the character is in like three scenes it doesn't have a lot to do so you're like oh okay and it is very my man Godfrey too. The family that, uh, yeah, the Winnet yeah. family, very my man Godfrey. It's been a while since I've watched the other Finn Man movies. I don't know about you.
1: I, I have not watched any of them. I, I have no good excuse for not having <laughs> watched them.
0: I mean, they're fun. They're worth watch at least once. They, the second one from what I remember, is also very good, and it, it does a good job of being like, all right, Nick and Nora Charles is the best thing about this, so let's really give them give them some spotlight but then starting with the third one they have a kid I think starting with the third one is when they really start doing the classic sequel mistake which is people loved this thing so let's do a bunch more of it in the next <laughs> one and it's like no oh, they loved it in balance with the other stuff but when you just make it about that it, it you know it's death by death by chocolate and um it just becomes more and more about the comedic bits asta gets like a bunch of weird subplots starting i think it's the third one maybe it's the second one like he has, a, he has a he's a homewrecker who's like seducing the dog next door that is in a relationship with another dog i mean it's like literally 10 10 minutes of the movie are just about Asta's love life in one of the movies i can't remember which one i mean either you just look at the genre descriptions for the movies on uh like IMDb or whatever you know the first couple are crime comedies, and then at a certain point, it just becomes a comedy, and that's that's very accurate. And it's still worth it because it's still William Powell and Myrna Loy, and you know the two of them getting to bounce off each other is is always going to be a lot of fun. But um, it's definitely the rest of the series is not one where I'm like I need to go see this again. But the first one, I'm like this is
1: this is great. Yeah, it is. It is something special. Arguably, it's uh, it, it it falls in in plot further a little. A little bit further from noir than uh, than Private Detective sixty two does, but uh, but there's certainly all of the um, you know y- you could you could envision a version of this that was was played like a classic noir.
0: I mean, if you took the family out of it, right? The family, I mean, setting aside the William Powell and Myrna Loy of it all, in terms of just plot mechanics, if you took out the ridiculous family hijinks. The rest of it plays as noir, you know, an ex client has gone missing and his secretary girlfriend turns up dead and it turns out she may have been robbing him. And then, uh, you know, the person who may have witnessed what happened to her, he gets killed. He was already suspicious, you know, like that part of it again, like if you cut off the if you change the tone. And if you cut off the first 10, 15 minutes, we had less context going into it. And we're really just like, it's a private eye dealing with a series of murders. Like it would hundred percent read the noir, but it's just so revved up with the wonderful fizz of William Palmer and a lawyer. They're just like, oh, let's let's just hang out with these two. Like, I, I just want to watch them unwrap Christmas presents. I don't care about the murder mystery.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's uh, every everything else does feel, um, does feel pretty incidental to it, just to give it those those beats of action that you need to keep the story going along, and that is just fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. but we're we're gonna we're gonna move beyond that before uh, before too long. We we will be uh, leaving comedy behind for a little while. Yes,
0: but I think it's again. I think that this has been a really instructive. You know, we talked a lot about what to what. We, we knew we wanted to do The Thin Man. And we talked a lot about um, what to pair with it. And we ended up doing Private Detective 62, which I think was ended up being the right choice. Yeah, uh, agreed. And for me, at least, we, in the very first episode, again, we talked about what is noir? How do you define it? what What is the actual thing that you must have in order to to qualify? And for me, these have been very instructive as demonstrations of how you can take all of the external signifiers of a noir, but the thing that matters is really that the main character is, is, is struggling with what's happening. Like the, the main character is internally affected by the events and is wrestling with his soul by the end. Right. Like that to me is, he is, or if, and if that if he isn't already at the start, like that's the, the the thing that gives noir its its friction is that the main character is just as much of a low life, maybe just a little bit less of a low life than everybody else.
1: We know that we're getting to that point in, in time. We know that it's not going to be too long after this when we'll start to see a a notable change. But for now, we're still looking through... Through the lens of the Depression, we're still looking through the lens of the early sound era. And there's just not that level of inner turmoil from mm-hmm. our protagonists showing up on screen just yet. But only a few years away. And years we're going to see a, a difference there.
0: Uh, in fact, their very next episode. Um, but before we get to that, we're going to have our usual segment What's in the Box? In honor of kiss me deadly what 's something that you recently watched that 's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase
1: well uh, ooh um, uh, aside from the thin man, which was probably the the highlight of my recent viewings, I very much enjoyed parallel mothers uh, it 's not top tier mm. al but Penelope Cruz is very, very good in it and uh, and there uh, and, and in Cruz and Al Moldavar are, are certainly one of my very favorite um actress actor director pairings that 's out there. They are two I mean, people who are just so on each other 's wavelength and yeah. um and so so for even even if it's not doesn 't quite hit the the heights of volver or, or talk to her for me um it, uh, or Todo Sobre mi madre it's uh it 's still quite good and she 's tremendous in it
0: you watched his uh two previous the uh Pain and Glory and uh the human voice?
1: I have not watched either of them. No, I I, I haven't watched uh a Al Multivar for a few years. Skin I Live In, I think was the last one.
0: Oh yeah. I mean I've heard very good things about Juliet. I have not watched that yet. Um I uh Pain and Glory, I loved Antonio Banderas, just a fantastic performance, worth it alone for for him, another great collaborator. Um and then uh, the Human Voice is worth tracking down, I think. It's a really interesting adaptation of this monologue and then very playful and just a, just a lot of fun. Just a sweat and having a great time. Awesome. Um, so I, I recommend tracking, tracking both of those down. Uh, most recently, I watched two things that I really enjoyed. Um, I watched Funeral Parade of Roses, which is this 1960s... Japanese new wave underground film about the trans and drag queen scene in in, Tokyo. They're not in Tokyo. I can't remember what city they're in. It is
1: very avant-garde and very new wave. I like the sound of that. I've not seen it. I don't think I've heard of it. uh, I found out about it
0: through through Letterboxd because I try to follow a bunch of people who watch a lot of movies so that they're always watching stuff that i've never even heard of Um, this is one of the ones that people kept rating very highly so i was like i gotta track it down and give it a watch and it is great it uh, sounds great really goes to some places which is is fun but to me the highlight is just how playful it is with the filmmaking itself and just does some stuff that really makes you sit up and pay attention so i highly recommend that and then i also just watched Uh, a recent American indie called Silvio, which is about a uh, ape who's a debt collector who accidentally winds up on a local UHF afternoon talk show and discovers an outlet for his passion for uh, a puppet series that he does called The Quiet Life. And it is... (laughs) I mean, based on the description, I think you can guess the tone and how what, what kind of movie it is. And either that sounds great to you or it doesn't. But it I is. Me on board. I mean, it uh, so it's a, it's a warm hug of a movie. It's very handcrafted. It's one straight from the heart for the, for these filmmakers. Um, they put it up on YouTube recently because their newest movie, Strawberry Mansion, is. Currently oh, in release through okay. Music Box. Yes.
1: I've I'm I'm excited to see that. Yeah. So this is their previous movie that they did together mm-hmm. with a
0: this character Silvio, who is was apparently on Vine, gathered a, enough of a following that they f- were able to follow through and make this feature <laughs> similar to what we're talking about with the Thin Man. You know, it's not a movie that's um about Storm and Drum. It's it's very much this this movie, uh, you know, kind of Michael Gondry-esque. But not as twee as that but in a a similar mode that just sort of very deadpans a lot of absurd fun stuff but it's also just has a lot of heart and a lot of affection for its characters and you probably will too by the
1: end awesome that sounds great to me
0: all right well thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest grittiest of genres You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we look at one of the titans of noir, Humphrey Bogart, and his two performances that define the private detective archetype going forward, The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep. It's going to be a good one. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelser music by kevin mcleod his work can be found at incompetech.com if you like the podcast tell a friend